I know if, if you're like me, um, those moments in those worship spaces where you get a sense of the presence of God and the comfort of God are more welcome right now, maybe than many, many times in, in recent memory. Our country is experiencing impossible difficulties. The, the, the eight minutes and 46 seconds that, that went viral around the world that clearly displayed the injustices done uh, to George Floyd, taking his life, were inhumane. Inhumane. I, 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 the word that kept popping in my mind is, is sociopathic. A, a complete inability of one person to empathize with the plight of another person that is being caused by them. It, it was inhumane. I, I don't, and, not, and, and we're, as a result, we're, we're, we're more divided than we've, we've ever been before. Um, uh, and we, we, don't, we don't know who to trust. We don't know who to listen to. We don't know who to believe. Basic things like kindness, common sense, humility are, are swept aside for unjust violence and toxic ideological rhetoric. I mean, it, it, everything is, is, is upside down. It's, 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 it's a mess. Our police forces, right, our, poli our, our police forces are full of good men and women who, in the best of times, have an almost impossible job. How are they, how are they supposed to do their responsibility? How are they supposed to fulfill their role to society in the midst of all of this? The church isn't exempt. We're, we're, we're flailing around. We're, we're trying to engage the public discourse, which is almost impossible to do without being divisive, even incidentally, or hurting someone accidentally. I, I've had to apologize multiple times already for well-intended efforts. <laughs> it's a mess right now. But we've got to continue to uh, unapologetically, organizationally find ways to stand with the hurting and against injustice. It's all just so deeply troubling and saddening. The pandemic. Remember the pandemic? We're not out of the woods on that yet either. There's really no end in sight. Where masses are coming together particularly as summer moves into it, along the coast and the beaches, wherever masses of people show up, new hotspots are emerging. That, the virus that we've been fighting is, sits just right on the edge of a resurgence. And I don't think we're going to really be able to uh, avoid it. You, you might feel safe, and maybe, maybe you are in your context. You might not be worried. But i got to be honest, it would be helpful if you were concerned about my 75-year-old and 80-year-old parents and others just like them, right? For the sake of the most vulnerable, you can very practically carry out Jesus' command to love one another simply by wearing a mask and continuing to distance yourself socially for the sake of others. 
injustice, the pandemic, uh, uh, the quarantine, the church, the church is, is upside down. We, we, the church not gathering. <laughs> Some are regathering. They're starting to gather again. But as soon as there's a sickness, if you're not aware, it shuts them down immediately. And not just shuts them down. It implicates their loved ones uh, in the sphere of contact that they've had as a church for the last three or four days since the sickness. It's like thousands of people are impacted by that. It's a sobering, that's a sobering part of the equation of trying to determine when to re-engage is the, the, the far-reaching effects of something that goes wrong. So some churches are re-gathering and some aren't. And this isn't a time for judgment. There is, there's really no good time for that, but this is definitely not it. Christian leaders of various different churches, of very different persuasions in different parts of the country, are making as sober-minded decisions as they possibly can, given the information they have and their own personal leadership conscience. I can't say at all what timing is right or wrong and whether we're right or wrong. We're going to do four things in June that I think you, you probably would be encouraged about. We're going to continue to do the digital offerings that we do, but we're going to continue to try to tweak those and make those a little more flexible and a little more available on demand, if you will, to fit your schedule. We're planning for a couple all-church gatherings, probably of the drive-in sort, and try and see how that goes. Uh, we're preparing uh, the Worthington facility uh, to host some small groups. Uh, if you want to try to gather some people together um, in a safe environment other than your home, and we're organizing some opportunities uh, for individuals to pass through the Thursday morning break for worship and try to enjoy some of that um, if we possibly can. Injustice, economic slowdown, pandemics, church disruptions, all that stuff puts tremendous strain on society, on churches, on organizations, on you. And wherever there is stress and strain, our fight or flight impulse threatens to rise up and tear us apart. You can, you can see it. You can see it happening. But here's the thing. So, <laughs> hope you're enjoying the sermon so far. It's a real pick-me-up Sunday morning kind of a thing. Uh, but here's the silver lining. I'm saying all that to lead to this bright, shining spot in the middle of it all. There is an authentic, sincere, multi-ethnic effort within the church to grow and to change and to be united. And it is so encouraging, so hope-filling, so personally meaningful, so affirming to experience that personally. I met with Four friends last week, really in succession for a few hours each. They're church leaders. Uh, they're, they're, they're black brothers, friends of mine. And we, we spent time together and we genuinely learned from each other. We were genuinely, sincerely empathic um, of one another's situation. And we did some planning together and we are committed to one another. And so are our churches, by and large, and so are so many other churches. It is super encouraging. 
Where did that come from? Where does that mutual respect and um, affirmation originate? Well, there's a lot of different reasons for it, not the least of which is, at least for me, about two decades of building those relationships. At least a decade of sharing resources with those brothers and with those churches, sharing the pulpit and the, the platform, and continuing uh, cooperative efforts to, to do good in our city and, and even globally together. We've been working together for years. That's at least part of why it can exist in the midst of these times, because we're not trying to pick up the ball right now. But the deeper reason, the deeper reason that the church is and can be unified and set the tone is because of a 2,000-year-old foundation that we all rest upon. Every Christian, arguably, has a DNA strand of unity embedded within us at our core which is very unlike our broken North American foundation and DNA. Right? The DNA of the, of the Christian church is non-racist. It is non-ethnocentric. It is non-gender biased. It is all Christian people stand together on the same foundation united. Listen to the way Paul puts this to the Corinthian church who had all sorts of cultural <laughs> clashes and all sorts of stuff that needed to be fixed. Read the, read the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians and you're just going to see Paul like, oh, okay, don't do, don't do that, do this, okay, you got to fix this, you got to stop that. All, that. all that craziness going on. Listen to what Paul puts into that letter. This is 1st Corinthians chapter 12. He boils it all down and says, even with respect to all of this stuff that needs to get fixed and worked through, listen to what he says. Just as a body, the one has many parts, right? Your body's got many parts. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we're all given the same spirit. That's the foundation of the church. In this particular uh, reference here, Jews and Gentiles, Prior to Christ, we're deeply divided. Jesus, uh, or those that follow Jesus, really Jews, Jews in general, really, really, would walk an entire three, extra three days across difficult terrain to go around Gentile lands and to avoid personal contact with Samaritans that were Gentiles. Jesus walked them straight into Samaria, literally. And spiritually. The other reference that Paul makes is to slave and to free. They were in the same church, and Paul directed them to meet and worship together in the same Christian community. He demanded that they love one another like Christ loved them, self sacrificially. And what he did by asking them to do that was he doomed the entire inequitable arrangement they had. You couldn't possibly worship together, submit to one another, love one another sacrificially, and keep that kind of arrangement alive. Everyone was on the same level and has been on the same level 
committed to the very same things, resting on the same foundation since the very beginning of the church. The reason the church can aspire to unity today is because it started and still is rooted in oneness in its origins. That's why. That's the difference. Your origins, your core beliefs, whatever they are and whatever context you're talking about, will permeate the practices and the structures that follow. Let me say that a different way. When you have whatever you have at the beginning or at the center of whatever you're doing, that is going to echo throughout the practice and structures of the future. It's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to resonate out whatever's at the center, whatever's at the beginning. Let me give you an example. Hygiene, personal hygiene. Here's me just throwing it out there, hoping you have a value for personal hygiene to some degree, right? Most of us do. But it doesn't stop there. If you believe in it, you are committed to it. It's a core value. What, what do you see? You see that value, that vision, that belief working itself out in practices. If you believe in hygiene, you're going to bathe and you're going to brush your teeth. What's going to happen from there? Those practices can be made more efficient uh, and more effective if you build the right structures. You make a bathtub. You invent a toothbrush, right? And those structures, those models, those practices all tie back to the origins of what you believe. Why is racism so deeply embedded in our American psyche and in our systems? And why is it so difficult for some people within the system to even see that that's for real? Because no matter how great this country has always been, it's always also been broken in its foundation. America was literally built on a model of ethnic hierarchy. The belief that some races were ethic, ethnically superior. America was built and systematized on the backs of a heartless devaluation of blacks and certain European ethnicities. That is our origin. That is where we started. That is where everything was built. And just like any belief and any origin, you cannot escape the permeation of those things really forever through the practices and structures of that thing. And we continue to this day to suffer those broken beginnings. Maybe with an increasing frustration due to the painful realization that it's likely to be an endless battle. Because it's not simply a white and black brokenness. It is a human brokenness. People step on other people to get where they want to go. People use other people for their own purposes. People abuse other people to satiate their own desires and to pursue their own accomplishments. It's, it is within our human character. It is within our human nature to oppress others for my good. The only solution to racism, to human egocentrism, to me-first protectionism, to self-oriented aspiration is a new beginning, a new foundation, a common, unbroken foundation. And there's only one of those in the world, and it's God's foundation. Only, only as the work of Christ 
and the Spirit of God permeate the hearts of men and women, can and will unity ever truly exist? Only upon the unbroken foundation of God's way can the brokenness of humanity be redeemed in such a way that it can unite. In the world, the dominating factors that drive life are things like fear, protection, tribalism, power, control. Even our best deeds in this world are usually measured against some sort of return on investment. If I do this good thing, will it at least give me and garner something back for me? If nothing at all, I'll probably choose some other good thing to do that brings some kind of self-esteem or validation. But in Christ, there is no fear. There is no need to control situations. There is no need to protect yourself. There is no room for self-orientation. No, no reality can exist in, in, on Christ that has to do with hierarchy of individuals or ethnicities. There is only peer-to-peer relationship. It's totally upside down in the kingdom. That's why we can unify. Loss is gain in the kingdom of God. To die so that others might live is the model of Jesus. To discover unity is to have your humanity redeemed. And that work is done exclusively by Jesus in Christ alone. Apart from Christ, we can't even see what's wrong. Let alone try to do better. You've probably heard this passage before. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only Uh, one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world, all of it, through Him. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light. That is our human condition. Without Jesus, we don't have light. We can't see right. We can't fix anything. And when we try, we probably are going to do it wrong. In Christ alone, we have light. In Christ alone, we have unity. Apart from him, we are doomed to darkness, within which the best we could possibly do is pretend to be unified. We're going to study for the next many weeks our Christian foundation. We're going to reaffirm that foundation. We're going to continue to reach and invite our friends, our city, and our nation to stand upon it. The struggle we face in the world is real. And we need to engage it. The greater struggle is that of those who are not yet redeemed have not yet trusted Christ, have not yet have their, had their humanity reversed by the Spirit of God so that this church can better. Both struggles are real. The struggle that is far more important is the eternal one. And if we can get through that struggle and do that struggle well, all the other struggles tend to fall in place and come along behind.
When we, when we plan to study the core values of the Christian faith in December of last year, we had no idea how timely it was going to be. God surely did. We have something to help us, and it's called a creed. A creed is a set of beliefs, a set of aims, which guide someone's actions. Right? This is what I, this is, this is what I said. Remember, you, you believe something, it leads to action, to practices, and to structures. A creed rests as the core, as the center, as the foundation, as the reminder, the, the, the common agreement. The simplest Christian creed was written by Paul, again, to the Corinthians. Right? right? He's trying to cut through all the mess, all, all the trouble, all the division. And he's saying, listen, for, for what I received, I've passed on to you of first importance. Don't forget this, Paul said. This is the main thing. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. Again, according to the scriptures, this is what we preached, and this is what you believed. Don't forget that. It's like the old Vince Lombardi speech to this horrible football team. Gathers him around, his assistant hands him a football, and he says, gentlemen, this is a football. It's like, we got to start at the very basic. You're so bad. Paul says, listen, there's so much going wrong. It's distracting you in Corinth. If he was here to say, he would say, look, you are upside down as a country. Come back to the basics. And it is upon this first and simplest core belief that Paul lays out that we stand together as a church. From there, we follow a principle um, that, that St. Augustine uh, gets credit for. Augustine of Hippo, um, a very, very old guy. We follow this principle. See if you can track with this. In the essentials, we have unity. In the creed, we have unity. In the core belief, we have unity. And what Paul states to the Corinthians, we all land right there and agree. In the non-essentials, Augustine says, we have liberty. We have freedom. We would say we have diversity in the church of all sorts. In the essentials, we have unity. In everything else, we want diversity. We want a mosaic of, of expressions. We don't press the non-essentials down into the essential space. When we do that, we have disunity. In the essentials, we have unity. In the non-essentials, we have diversity. And in all things, in all cases, we love Jesus boiled it all the commandments, all of the instruction, all of the direction down. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. The default position, whether you are talking about essentials or non-essentials, is we love above all else. We don't get upside down about how much water one church uses to baptize and how much water another church uses to baptize. We don't get sideways about how the Spirit shows up in one person versus another person. We don't get upside down about music styles or communion techniques or social issues or politics or anything other than the truth about Christ. That's where we stand. Everything else we have liberty, diversity. 
As the church grew in its early stages, you can only imagine how things like low literacy rates and inabilities to document things and make core truths transferable. Not to mention various and sundry cultural differences clashing together to try to be the church. The founders had to develop a discipleship tool to ensure the unity of the core essentials. They knew that this would define the church. This would be critical for the unity of the church. So the apostles took what Paul put down as the initial creed, and the commandment of Jesus to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They pressed those two things together and developed a creed we know as the Apostles' Creed. Jesus said, look, I want you to go and make new believers. I want you to disciple them. I want you to teach them. I want them to demonstrate their commitment to me by being immersed theologically and literally in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the apostles, they take the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and develop a simple statement that describes the Christian, scriptural, Jesus understanding of those things. And now the church immerses and baptizes everyone who would call on the name of the Jesus into that basic understanding to stand unified on. It goes a little bit like this. It goes a lot like this. It's exactly like this. <laughs> What I mean to say is, I'm going to stop and explain a few things. Here we go. I'll just take a few minutes and, and we'll wrap it up for this morning or whenever you're watching this. I believe. Of course, the creed starts with I believe. Interestingly, starts with I. When this isn't an individual thing, it's a corporate thing. But that's the beauty of it. Yes, I say I, but what we imagine is that I say I along with every other Christian in my Field of vision, every other Christian comes before me, and every Christian uh, every, the, around the world. We say I, but we say it in unison. We say it uh, as a chorus of unified believers. We say I, but we do it together. When you say I believe in the midst of the creed, you should imagine millions of Christians saying it along with you, unified on these issues. We say believe. And we're going to ask you to believe again or for the first time every single week. We're going to read this. We're going to look at this and we're going to look at one another in the eye. And we're going to say, do you believe it? Will you believe it? All of it. Every single piece of the original creed. Do you believe it? And we say believe because it's a leap of faith. The things that we believe as Christians, are not easy to believe. If they were, we wouldn't need a creed. We wouldn't need faith for that matter. Belief is a choice we make to believe things that can arguably be refuted. But we say, I believe, together with all Christians. I choose to believe these things. The question becomes, do you? In God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, 
Like I said, we're going to go into all this in greater detail. In God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. <laughs> what are we saying? We believe in God. Not just any God, the God. The one that's at the center of the universe, the center of the creation, the center of all things. The one who is above everything and at the same time in control of everything. What's implied there? It ain't you and it ain't me that's at the center of the universe. It's not me that's at the center of life. It's him. We believe in God the Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth. And we believe in Jesus Christ, the only son, our Lord. You think you have an impressive resume? You've seen an impressive resume recently? Listen to this one. I'm, I, I'm not going to go into this right now. Listen to it. This is who Jesus is. Conceived of the Holy Spirit. Born of the Virgin Mary. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Crucified. Died. Buried. Descended into hell. Rose from the dead. Ascended into heaven. And now sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And for thence, he, from then he comes to judge all the world. He's the one that judges the world, not us. This is Jesus, and this is who we believe in. And finally, I believe in the Holy Spirit. See, what the apostles did was they had new believers recite this very creed when they got baptized. This is what you believe now for the rest of your life. And they finished with the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Catholic Church, which in this case means the church universal. The communion of saints, which means the unity of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. This is the world's unifying platform. There is no other. It is our unshakable view that the only hope for any sort of reconciliation and justice in the world rests upon humanity finding their way back to God. The only one who can save us from ourselves, save us from our poor judgments, our penchant to condemn, and our rigid determination to preserve ourselves. The world is going to continue to attempt to force the other side, whoever it is, into submission. But the church will continue to invite everyone to voluntarily submit to the King, Jesus, in whom there is no distinction, but a beautiful mosaic of various expressions, practices, and models of faith, unified under one God. It's not easy. It's a struggle. It's not easy to live out of this creed, but that's what we're called to do. We're not called to just believe. We're called to take those beliefs, those origins, the center of our faith, and, and have it radiate into our practices and into our structures. The struggle is real. The end is beautiful. I want to leave you with... Some words from the prophet Isaiah. He reflects beautifully the point, the hope of the nations is in Jesus.